Hi guys, welcome to another Monday night study. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. Last week, what we did is we started, kind of started over for the year, and we wanted to go through and look at the uh, canon of scripture, and just to give us a a, uh, a reason for studying the scrolls uh, to go through and make sure we're not having problems. Um, a lot of people would ask, you know, why do we not study just the New Testament or just the New Testament and the Old Testament? Uh, why do we study scrolls? Are we trying to add the scrolls to the Bible? You know, things like that. And those are legitimate questions, and we wanted to cover some of those. Last week, if you were with us, what we did, all we did really is we looked at the Old Testament. We saw there were 39 books in the Old Testament, the way we count them, 24 books as the way the Jews count them but they're just counted differently it's exact same canon and what we did is we ended by seeing that uh, the legend is that ezra in the apocalypse of ezra which is something outside the old testament said that the old testament should be sealed completed shut up in other words at the 24 books the way the jews count which is our 39. so the old testament then the concept was that the prophets uh, created the canon. And we talked about how Moses was a prophet because he heard from God. He did miracles to prove he was who he was. And we have the, the 10 plagues of the Exodus, the Exodus itself, pillar of fire by day, pillar of smoke by night, the locusts and lots of other things attacking and all the different things that they did. So uh, Moses is obviously a real prophet. So he writes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then we just go forward from there. The person writing the text may or may not be a prophet, but the prophets put them together. And that's the thing that we want to look at. So it's not like a council of people that may or may not be godly decided, okay, I think we're done now. Wait, I think I want to add my uncle's book, you know, and just slip something in or take something out you don't like. Now that's always going to happen you're always going to have a group of people a cult for instance create their own bible and rewrite it so that's always a possibility so that doesn't mean that there aren't fake bibles or messed up manuscripts or whatever but just the question of what books should be in the bible and that's where we started from so we start with moses with genesis and we end with malachi and that whole thing is put together and we looked at that last week and we had this um thing from uh, the Ezra Apocalypse, and it's called Second Ezra's in the uh, Old Testament. And the interesting thing about that is we covered a little bit of the history. Uh, the whole concept of when King James ordered the King James Bible to be put together, to be put in uh, modern English of, of their time, so that people could read the Bible in their own language. So the scholars that put it together were Catholics, Anglicans, Protestants, you know, and who knows what else, but a collection of some 56 scholars, all knew multiple languages, all were very good at what they did, but they had to come to an agreement. And we said, we all accept the 39 books of the Old Testament, but the Roman Catholics have what's called Roman Catholic Apocrypha. We haven't really studied the Apocrypha yet, but the basic idea is there's, I think, six or seven books that are extra, and then there are extra chapters that go on to certain books like Daniel. Um, let's see. 
Esther and a few others. And so they're in Greek. They're in that intertestamental period time uh, after the time of Ezra. And so basically the Anglicans said, well, here's the Roman Catholic Apocrypha. Uh, you want to put it in the Old Testament as being part of the Old Testament. We don't want to do that. Well, why? And they basically focused on the Ezra Apocalypse. And that's not part, originally was not part of the Roman Catholic Apocrypha. It's an extra one. So if we want to say this, there's 13 books of Roman Catholic Apocrypha. There's one book of Anglican Apocrypha, and that would be the Ezra Apocalypse. So if you believe the Ezra Apocalypse is real, written by Ezra, the guy that write, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, that Ezra. And if it's legitimate, and it says the Old Testament is supposed to have only the 39 books, so it itself is not included, much like when Enoch, Jude quotes Enoch in the New Testament, but the book of Enoch itself says it's not to be added to the canon. So that's that whole concept. So there's a public canon that is for the uh, righteous and the unrighteous. Anybody and everybody should read their Bible. It should not be thousands and thousands of books long. It should be just enough for us to understand what God wants for us. And then there are other history books, prophecy books, and things like that that we would want to look at later. Um, much like, you know, almost everybody would say, if you're a new Christian, just became a, a follower of the Lord, start with the New Testament and start with the Gospel of John. Don't necessarily start in Matthew and just the beginning and go forward, but start with the Gospel of John and study it. And then maybe the other Gospels and the Epistles of Paul and just begin to learn them. When you get up to Galatians, you know, stop, maybe read some of Genesis, first half of Genesis at least, so you know who's doing what, what the stories are, and then just kind of grow from there. It takes a while for you to learn what you should and should not do, what happened and didn't happen, what's going to happen in the future, what's not going to happen in the future. It just takes time. So that's what we kind of covered last week about that whole concept. And what's interesting about it is you have the Anglicans then coming to an agreement with the Roman Catholics that we have a 39-book Old Testament, a 27-book New Testament, a middle section called Apocrypha, which is the Roman Catholic extra stuff, plus the one book that the Anglicans want to put in, which is the Ezra Apocalypse. Now, in the King James 1611, it's called a uh, the second Ezra's. Ezra's is just the Greek word for Ezra. Matter of fact, I think I still have that here, that picture. Okay, I guess I don't. Anyway, you can look this up if you just go online and look up uh, King James 1611 and then look at the table of contents. You'll see that there's an apocrypha in the center with that extra book. So what we want to do, go forward. Tonight, we're just going to look at the New Testament. Uh, but eventually, we'll look at what the Old and the New Testament recommends we read if it mentions other books. Uh, and some of those books will be in the Old and New Testament and others will not be. So we want to create a collection, uh, just a list of these books and then see if we can find them and go forward with them. And we'll see that sometimes the church fathers quote them. Sometimes they're quoted in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in most cases, we have either none of it, a couple of quotes or maybe a few chapters. Rarely do we have a whole book of anything, but still, it's something that we want to study. 
So tonight, let's do this. Uh, let me pull this up. And we're going to look at the New Testament. Now, just like last time, we had kind of a, a surprising development of just seeing the the whole idea of the Old Testament being closed and the authority to say that it's closed, that the Apocrypha should not be in it, is actually from the one of the Apocryphal books. So that's interesting. So if you accept that the canon could be open, then the other books tell you it's closed. If you assume it's closed and you ignore the other books, it's still closed. So we're pretty much done. So we have the same kind of stuff with the New Testament. So here in our study, we have the New Testament. I think most of us know this. So in the New Testament, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we get to study uh, the Gnostic works, we'll find lots of other Gospels, for instance. There's the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, things like that. And they sound legit if you just read through them casually at first. Uh, but when you dig into them deeper, the Gnostic uh, heretical ideas come out. Uh, the Gnostics taught things like Jesus is one God among many. Um, and all these different things. You save yourself by meditation. Uh, he didn't die on the cross, really. Just all sorts of weird ideas. And that goes totally contrary to what we have in the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we know they're fake. So we'll come back to that in a minute, though. It has one history book, and that's the book of Acts. That starts off with uh, Jesus ascending and then the disciples beginning to preach and, and convert and going on. And it goes through a lot of Peter and then eventually all of Paul's life. And the book of Acts ends with... Uh, uh, Paul being put in his own rented house in Rome for two years. And then that's where it leaves off because Luke doesn't know anything else at that point. And we know from history, we'll see this in a minute, that Paul was released, did a fourth missionary journey, or uh, his last missionary journey, and went from Rome to Spain to Great Britain, back through Gaul, was arrested again, taken back to Rome, it's about a four or five year period in that. And then he was executed. So, but Acts just tells us um, the beginning of the church, a little bit of Peter and the guys, and then the starting of Paul's ministry and goes up and stops when he's in Rome in prison. So, but going on with Paul, then they're what they call the, the Pauline epistles or the Paul's epistles to the churches. We have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So each one of these was written to a church in Galatia, Corinth, Thessalonica, Rome, etc. And he writes two to Corinthians and two to Thessalonians. And then we have what's called the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So he's writing not to churches in general, but to pastors specific information. How do you deal with troublemakers? How do you do this? How do you do that? So when you're wanting to learn how your church should be run, what's proper, what's not, um, do I qualify as a deacon or a pastor? Well, we could check out my lifestyle, compare it to this, and it's either a yes or no. It's pretty straightforward. So these are the ones that you judge everything by. And then there's Hebrews. Actually, I need to flip this around a little bit because most people would put this in with the general epistles. Some of the church fathers would say 
um, Paul wrote Hebrews in Hebrew to the temple priests. And Luke or Barnabas or someone translated it into Greek. And so that's why parts of it sound like Paul, parts of it don't really sound like Paul. And so that's been kind of the tradition among the church fathers. So because of that, some people would say Paul wrote Hebrews and other people say, no, it was someone else. For our purposes, we really don't care who wrote it. The Holy Spirit put it in the New Testament. It's very important for us to study. Um, but my personal opinion, I think Paul wrote it. But Then we have the general epistles, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. These are, are very small, but very, very good to study. And then one book of prophecy, which is Revelation. So we can understand this. If this was compiled by the prophets, just like the Old Testament was, and the prophets made sure and finished it, then, then there are no missing books of the New Testament. Those supposed missing books are either fake, or maybe they have real history, real prophecy, but either way, they shouldn't be a part of the New Testament canon. And that's, that's the thing we're trying to get at. So we know the Old Testament's 39. We know the New Testament is 27. So let's go on and study this a little more. So that's my guess in what we're saying. But what do other people say? So we're going to look at these church fathers. So I've talked about these many times before, but Irenaeus is a church father who wrote about 170. Irenaeus is an eyewitness of John the Apostle. So none of these guys are eyewitnesses of our Lord. Otherwise, they'd be apostles and their stuff would be in the New Testament canon. But the apostles had many, many converts. And when you find someone that was an eyewitness of the apostles, that's a first generation convert of the apostles. And when you study church history, it's really important that you pull together the handful of people that were eyewitnesses of the apostles, start with their doctrine, and then their, their disciples and their disciples as you go on down the generations. And you'll see that in the first two or three generations, everybody taught the same thing. So if you were to ask, did they believe you could, uh, the gifts still function? What did they believe about prophecy? What did they believe about the rapture? All this stuff. They pretty much all said the same thing. And then three or four generations down, you, you have persecutions. New people rise up that aren't taught properly. And then you start having differences of opinions. And so... To me, that's really nice because you can look at the beginning part and it's completely solidified. So you know what proper doctrine is. I remember when I first started studying the early church fathers, my friends were saying, no, 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 don't do that. You'll end up becoming Roman Catholic. Bad idea. And I remember saying, well, if the early church fathers that studied under the apostles said we should be Roman Catholic, then we should be Roman Catholic. And I remember them, you know, going like, oh, it's already started. He's converting. It's going to be horrible. Um, but you'll find out they're extremely anti what we would call Roman Catholic, anti-Calvinist, things like that. So really straightforward. Um, so anyway, but Irenaeus is a guy. So you have John the Apostle who teaches uh, Polycarp. Polycarp works with John for some time. 10, uh, 10 or 20 years, I believe. And then John is banished to the island of Patmos. And this would have been about 96, 95, 96. He writes the book of Revelation. And then Caesar dies. 
The next Caesar says, well, I don't like Christians either, but they're no threat to the empire. So let them all go. So he goes back to Ephesus, works another 20 years with Polycarp, and then dies and is buried in Ephesus. That's the history that they give us. Well, Polycarp then is with John a good 40 years, planning churches, doing stuff. Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp. Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. So this guy, he he writes before 170, so somewhere in that neighborhood. Then you got Clement of Alexandria, who wasn't part of that crowd, but he writes um, about 190. Uh, Hippolytus is actually the best known disciple of Irenaeus. So he writes about 200. Matter of fact, Irenaeus is fa famous for writing a book called Against Heresies. It's an anti-cult book. Many of you remember Dr. Walter Martin, and he wrote Kingdom of the Cults. And then I think it was Ravi Zacharias or somebody kind of got the rights to it. And then it was many years after Walter Martin's death, but they added a few chapters, revamped it, modernized it. So that kind of thing. So Irenaeus writes against heresies. Hippolytus will write, um, I think it's called refutation of all heresies. So like a secondary one. It's really cool because there's heretics in there and cults in their day and they'll write this group started with this and this is how we know they're not correct and really helps with doctrine. Tertullian writes about 210, Origen 240, Eusebius 325, and Athanasius 370 or 367. So these guys we want to look at and see what they said the canon was about. So they all had four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One book of history, which is Acts, uh, the epistles of Paul. Uh, some of them said that certain groups disputed um, James, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, because they just seemed like they were just letters. So these are groups we at the beginning, as we can see, that didn't understand the concept of the prophets will decide what goes in and what doesn't. And these guys looked at it like, yeah, this doesn't look really important. I think I'll just toss it. How many times do we do that today? And this, I think, means something else. I'll just ignore it. So those kind of people we want to stay away from. But they agreed there's, there's 27. Now, in addition to these guys, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys, we have the oldest Bibles, okay? And that would be the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, the Alexandrius, and the other one here. I think it's, so they're approximately 350, 350, 450, and 700. And those are their abbreviations. So here's a chart, master chart here. And you can see Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, Clement, Origen, Eusebius, Athanasius, the Latin Vulgate, Maturianian Canon Fragment. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and these others. So here are all the ones we looked at. And as you can see, they all have four Gospels. They all have a book of Acts. They all have the epistles of Paul. And then some of them don't mention Philemon. So Irenaeus and Hippolytus, for instance, didn't mention Philemon by name. But again, if you don't mention it, but you have the right number. It, same thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls. You'll notice that we have fragments of all the Old Testament books, except for Esther. And people will ask, well, did they accept Esther as inspired or, you know, well, we just don't have a copy of it. That's all or a fragment of it. But there are fragments that tell us that there should be 39 books of the Bible. 
So if they have 38 out of the 39 and then tells us there's another one, and that's the inspired canon, that pretty much lets us know it's Esther. So we'll find a piece of Esther sometime. So anyway, and then there's Hebrews, James, First, uh, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. And as you can see, Origin and Eusebius mention up in their time. That's the two hundreds and three hundreds. So way up there, you get people that start deciding. Yeah, we'll decide what should be in the canon or not. No, no, canon's closed. You ought to know better than that. But some of these groups disputed: James, Second Peter, Second, Third John, and Jude. A lot of people ask because Martin Luther was one that said that the epistle of James is a right strawy epistle without one ounce of gospel in it. So he advocated removing it from the canon. And people always wonder, you know, why, you know. And one of the things that they forget is the entire story. Martin Luther is creating the, the Lutheran Bible and he's using... Um, Latin Vulgate, Latin manuscripts. And some of the Latin manuscripts got pretty corrupt. That's why everybody, when they started doing this, was trying to find the Greek and the Hebrew more original, not a translation of a translation of a translation. And when you look at the old debate on uh, whether works saves you or works simply proves you're saved or, you know, that whole thing with James and, and Paul. When you look at the Latin manuscript, it really does look like James is saying you're saved by works. And if that's the case, it goes against what Paul is saying and should be out of the canon. That's what that's what Martin Luther was saying. But what Martin Luther didn't understand is if he would go back to the Greek version, it doesn't say it like that. And it's very easy to understand. So that's why Martin Luther said that. I agree with him. If James said what he thought James said, it shouldn't have been put in the canon because it goes against Paul. But that's not what James said. So just kind of a little insight on that. So these guys may have been heretical. These guys may have been saying, well, my translation says it like this. And if that's true, there's a problem. And I would agree if the translation is like that, there's a problem with the translation. So anyway, this is just a good example of all these Bibles and these groups of people still showing 27 books of the Bible. Now, here's an interesting point. The Dead Sea Scrolls say this, basically. They teach that there would be an age of grace. When the age of grace comes, there is a Benjamite that writes a series of epistles that's going to be in their canon. It will also include a history of how the age of grace started. And it will also include prophetic teachings from the Messiah. Well, I'm thinking of Matthew 24 and 25 and things like that. Book of Revelation is from the Messiah. Uh, so things like that. So it's interesting that that would be mentioned. So here's the exact quote. This is from uh, Testament of Benjamin 11. It says, one will rise up from my seed in the latter times. And remember, latter times is the end of an age. There was the first age, the second age. We're looking for the end times when the rapture and second coming occur. Then there's going to be at least a thousand year reign and then another end times. So we have to remember that. So which age are they talking about? What are they focusing on? So at the end of some age, we knew that know this to be the first coming of the Messiah. 
So in a lot of times, someone arises from the tribe of Benjamin, from his seed, beloved of the Lord, hearing his voice on the earth. Remember when Paul heard the voice and was blinded? Enlightening with new knowledge all the Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. Bursting in on Israel for salvation with the light of knowledge and tearing it away from them like a wolf and giving it to the synagogue of the Gentiles. There's going to be this new synagogue and it's called, we tend to call it a church. Uh, it's made up mainly of Gentiles because things have changed. And this until it says the consummation of the ages, until the end of that age, at least. So 2,000 years of grace, so at least until the second coming, if not further on up. He, this Benjamite, will be in the synagogue of the Gentiles. How many of you at church ever read or have a sermon on one of the epistles of Paul? Yeah, that, that's pretty common. So it's still being read all the time. And among their rulers as a strain of music to the mouth of all. And he will be inscribed in the holy books the new canon we could call that maybe a new testament if you wanted to call it that way both his work and his word so his work is the book of acts how it got started his word is the epistles and he will be a chosen one of god forever so very very interesting now so the dead sea scrolls predict a new testament canon and again think about it this way we don't add the new testament to the old testament the Old Testament is its own thing. The New Testament is its own thing. And then there are other sets. I wouldn't necessarily call them canons, but there are other sets of books that we would want to look at, but not connected with this directly. So here's what's called the Muratonian, Muratorian <coughs> excuse me, canon fragment. This is a fragment found in the 17-1800s, but it supposedly or very well could be Caius Caius was a disciple of Irenaeus, that first guy that we were looking at. And it talks a lot about what should be in the canon and why. So I want to read you some, well, I want to read you the whole thing. It's a fragment, so we're missing the first and the ending pieces. But it talks about the fact that we always have had and always will have only four Gospels. One book of Acts. Uh, there's 14 books written by Paul. That would be the 13 plus Hebrews. Uh, there's one real epistle of Paul to the Laodiceans. Well, Paul mentions that in Colossians, that he wrote an epistle to him. But there's also forged epistles to Laodicea and Alexandria. So if you find a Laodiceans, it might be legit, but there's at least one forgery. So we got to be careful of that. It mentions Jude, two epistles of John. And one of Revelation. So again, like the others, it doesn't mention all of them. Then again, it's fragmented. So we're not sure what we're missing. Fails to mention Hebrews, James, 3 John, and the epistles of Peter. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. It notes that some people accepted the revelation of Peter and the book of wisdom, which I think is odd because that's an Old Testament apocryphal book. So it should be, if you're going to put it in your canon, I think you'd put it in the Old Testament rather than the New Testament. but And then it accepts none of the Gnostic books. So let's read this just so we can kind of see it. It's fragmented. So it starts off saying, which nevertheless he was present. So he placed it in his narrative. Now we know this is talking about probably Mark. 
Matthew and Mark are the first two Gospels. This It starts off by saying the third book of the Gospel. Is that according to Luke? So this is talking about Matthew and Mark, and then we start really talking about Luke. The third book is that according to Luke, Luke was a well-known physician and wrote it in his own name. It's widely believed, I guess they're not absolutely sure, but it's widely believed that he wrote it after the ascension of Christ when he was traveling with the Apostle Paul. It makes sense. Luke had a great deal for making sure all the information was completely correct. It's true that he hadn't seen the Lord in the flesh, yet having ascertained the facts, he was able to begin his narrative with the nativity of John. So that's his explanation of the Gospel of Luke. Now we go to John, it says the fourth book of the Gospel is that of John, uh, one of his disciples. In response to an exhortation of his fellow disciples and bishops, he said, fast with me for three days, then let us tell each other whatsoever shall be revealed to each one. So what we remember, kind of a collection. The same night it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that it should be John who should write it in his own name, they all acting as correctors. That way there would be no discord, even though different selections are given from the facts in individual books of the Gospels, and the faith of the believers should be secure. Because in all of them, under one guiding spirit, all the things relative to his nativity, passion, resurrection, conversation with his disciples, his twofold advent, the first in humiliation rising from contempt, which took place, and the second in glory of kingly power, which is yet to come, have all been declared. So they're going to, it's going to talk about all this stuff. What marvel is it then if John brings forth so consistently in his epistles these things, saying, what we've seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, and our hands have handled, those things we have written. John professes not only to be an eyewitness, but a hearer and a narrator of all the wonderful things of the Lord in their order. And one thing I hadn't thought about is, this is quoting 1 John, of course, but what's interesting, I never thought about it, but he says, we're telling you the things that we have seen with our eyes and handled with our hands. And I just never noticed that before. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not just me, it's, it's us. So that's pretty cool. Okay, anyway, so there's only four Gospels, right? So the book of Acts. Moreover, the Acts of the Apostles are written by Luke in one book for the most excellent Theophilus. So there's no extra Acts. Somebody could have actual real history somewhere, but it's not something in the canon. Luke wrote about the individual events that took place in his presence. He clearly shows this by omitting the crucifixion of Peter and the departure of Paul when Paul went from the city of Rome to Spain. So that's at the very end of the book of Acts when Paul's uh, released from his house imprisonment and then goes to Spain, to Britain, back to Gaul and gets rearrested. Luke wasn't there for that stuff. He wasn't an eyewitness, so he didn't write about it. And then Paul. Now, Paul's epistles, what they're about and whom they're written to, is clear to anybody who reads them. 
First of all, Paul wrote at length to Corinthians, to Corinth, to correct their her heretical system, to the Galatians to forbid circumcision. That's becoming a big deal today with the Hebrew roots guys. Then to the Romans on the order of the New Testament scriptures, showing that Christ is the chief matter in them. Each of which is necessary for us to discuss, seeing the blessed apostle Paul himself, following the example of John, writes to no more than seven churches by name. Um, let's see, in the following order. Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Thessalonians, and Romans. So I thought it's interesting the, the order that they think it's written in. But he writes twice for the sake of correction to Corinth and Thessalonica. It's shown by these seven epistles that there's one church spread out throughout the whole earth. Likewise, John, also in the Apocalypse, although he writes to seven churches, he speaks to us all, and he wrote out of affection, and one epistle, this is Paul we're still talking about, uh, one epistle to Philemon, one to Titus, and two to Timothy. These are held, held sacred by the universal church in regulation of ecclesiastical discipline. So like we were saying before, if you think I'm qualified to be a pastor or deacon, or maybe I'm not, how would you go about finding out? Well, you look at 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, um, and then judge me by it. I'm either qualified or I'm not. So ecclesiastical discipline. And I'm doing something, and some people think I shouldn't be doing it. Is it mentioned? Is it something that I should or should not be doing? That kind of stuff. How do you regulate your church? Now, that's Paul. But then it says this, forgeries. There's also circulating one epistle to the Laodiceans and one to the Alexandrians forged in the name of Paul against the heresy of Marcion. Marcion is a well-known Gnostic, and we can look at his stuff later. And all this is in our book, Ancient Church Fathers, so if you want to have a copy of it. And it will be in our new network, too, when we get it up. Um now, Colossians chapter 4, at the very end of the book of Colossians, it talks about Paul writing an epistle to Laodiceans. And so that everybody knows he's above board, he wants the Laodiceans to read Colossians and the Colossians to read the epistle to Laodicea so that he everybody can see that he's saying the same stuff. Um, so there is one, and there's at least one fake. So that's why we got to be careful. So this is interesting. So he mentions that and it says, and there's many others that are forged in the name of Paul. There are many other books out there, Gospel of Mary, stuff like that. There are many others which cannot be received into the universal church, for it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. So I thought that was really interesting, really good way of saying it. We want real information, not fake information. Now, general epistles. Further, an epistle of Jude and two bearing the name of John are counted among the general epistles. So I'm guessing third John. It, it is very short and has almost no doctrine in it. So I could see why somebody 
wouldn't know about it, wouldn't think about it, something like that. And Wisdom, written by the Friends of Solomon and His Order. Like we said, the, the Wisdom of Solomon is a book in the Roman Catholic Apocrypha. Um, it's got some good stuff in it. it. To me, it's mainly stay away from idols, and that's pretty much it. Um, so, yeah. But if you were going to have it in your canon, it should be in the Old Testament, not the New. So it's interesting that that's mentioned there. But anyway, we receive the Apocalypses. That's the book of Revelation. The Apocalypses of John and Peter only. Although some of us do not wish the Apocalypse of Peter to be read in church. So we do have a Apocalypse of Peter. Whether or not it's this one or not, I don't know. But it's in the Church Father archive. So we always talk about eSword. So if you get eSword and you down, it's a free Bible prop. Uh, software, you can uh, download all of the new the um, Antinocene Fathers, and in there you'll have the Apocalypse of Peter. Uh, I think it's in, I think it's in seven. There's nine nine books. Anyway, but it's in there if you want to look at it. It may or may not be the same one. We always got to be careful of that. But so everybody should be reading the Apoc or Apocalypse of John, since the Book of Revelation. And maybe or maybe not the Apocalypse of Peter. I thought it was interesting because in the Catholics and the Orthodox communities, they don't read the book of Revelation. And there's there's this legend amongst them about how at the council, I think it was Council of Chalcedon, they made a gentleman's agreement to include it in the canon under the condition that nobody actually read it in church, which sounds weird to me either it's in the canon which means we should read it or it's fake which means it shouldn't be in the canon anyway the council of chalcedon that particular one uh the records are destroyed so nobody knows what actually happened so it's really convenient to say oh we made that decision at that particular one there's no way to prove you did or didn't no records for it so interesting anyway so then it goes on, talks about general non-inspired stuff. So the epistle or um, Shepherd of Hermas, that's, that's also one of the uh, things that the church fathers talk about. It's not part of the Apocrypha. But Hermas, this guy named Hermas, wrote something called The Shepherd in the city of Rome, most recently in our times, when his brother, Bishop Pius, was occupying the chair at the Church of Rome. So Whenever we could look this up, whatever Bishop Pius was the Bishop of, of Rome, you can figure out during that time period is when this was written. So indeed, it ought to be read. It's probably got some good stuff in it, uh, but it's not scripture. It's not from the apostles or anything. So you can read it, it says, but that it be made public to the people in the church, you know, studied in church services and placed among the prophets whose number is complete, thought that was interesting, or among the apostles, is not possible to the end of time. It should not be in the New Testament canon. Okay, so may have good stuff in it, but not something we add. So then it ends, and this, of course, is not the end, but this is where the fragment ends. We reject everything written by Arsenus, Valentinus, and Melitides. Now, these are three prominent Gnostic heretics. So if we study Gnosticism, we'll see what they taught and why. 
and you'll agree yeah that's we don't want anything by cults okay we also reject those who wrote the new book of psalms marcion basilides the founder of the Asian Cataphrygians, and, and then it goes on, but we're missing the ending. So you can look each one of that. Marcion, there's a lot of information on amongst the church fathers. Basilides is a guy who is uh, kind of a Pelagian. You're born saved, and as long as you don't do anything really weird, you don't have to worry about anything. Where the opposite is Valentinius. Valentinus is a guy who was um, what we would consider Calvinist. Um, you're, you, you can be born saved and it doesn't matter what you do um, because sin doesn't matter. It's kind of a weird Calvinistic type thing. Some Calvinists are not like this, but you can basically, uh, the opposites in the scale are Calvinism on one side and um, um Pelagian on the other, and we're kind of what's called semi-Augustinian, which is the biblical concept. So Valentinus and Basilides are like the, the opposites in that. Um, Marcion was just plain weird. Uh, he rejected all of the Old Testament, saying the Old Testament God was, is an evil guy. And Jesus came to destroy the Jews and the Jewish people and Jewish stuff and everything. Kind of weird that he'd be born Jewish if he's going to destroy it, but... These guys are all weird. So that's, we reject all the Gnostic cults. And then one other side note is some of the Wycliffe and Quaker Bibles, basically in the Protestant canon, you almost always have the 27 books of the New Testament. And that's just dead. But John Wycliffe, when he put together the, the New Testament, some of his and some of the Quaker Bibles based on his will have that epistle to Laodiceans. And it may or may not be the one mentioned in Colossians. It might be the forgery, because we know there's at least one real one, one forgery. Anyway, so that's an interesting thing. So pulling all this together, we can basically see that we have from the church fathers and from the canon fragment and the explanation from the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, that the canon is closed. So we have 39 books in the Old Testament, the way we count them, and the 27 books in the New. So later on, we'll look at the Apocrypha a little bit and what Eastern Orthodox people have in their canons. Because even though this is the case, a canon is a good place to store something, holy scriptures, so it's not lost. So the Eastern Orthodox will have the Protestant Old Testament and New Testament. They'll have the Roman Catholic Apocrypha. Some of them will have the Anglican Apocrypha, the Second Ezra, or the Ezra Apocalypse. But several of them will have an extra book of something stuck in their Old Testament or their New Testament. And so we just want to create a list of that. And then also later we want to go through and look at the books mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament and pull them together. Like most of us realize when you're reading the, God, the um, Epistle of Jude, it mentions that Enoch said, and then it gives a small quote of a prophecy that Enoch said. Well, that's in the book of Enoch chapter one. Uh, so that's something we should look at. Uh, we just have to understand that the book of Enoch we have may or may not be the real one. And even if it is the real one, it may or may not be translated right. And even if it's translated right, the manuscripts could have been tampered with in the Middle Ages. No way to tell.
So you always want to take anything outside the canon with a grain of salt. So everything has to be judged by the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 new, nothing else. If it seems to go against what the Old or the New Testament says, then we're either looking at it wrong or it's wrong. And so that's where we want to start with when we start studying the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Church Fathers, and the like. So, okay. Okay, let me stop at this point, and we'll do this. We'll go to the pinned messages and see what we've got. Where can we find the original? Oh, let me go ahead and push this up so everybody can see it. John asks, where can we find the original testaments of the patriarchs? Uh, basically, there, there's two sets of those, kind of. Um, we have amongst the... the, the um, Antinocene fathers, it's in there, it's for free, the 12 patriarchs, which are the 12 sons of Jacob. Interesting story, though, but supposedly everybody knew about the Essenes and the library and those kind of stuff from the first century. Somewhere in the Middle Ages, somebody said they went to the hills of Judea and found in caves Hebrew manuscripts. And they took it to, I think it was the Syrian Orthodox Church, one of them, I forget which one it is, and said, this is what we found. The Orthodox Church bought it, translated it into Greek, and put it in their canon. And it's the testament of the 12 patriarchs. Well, when you ask them, where's the original Hebrew? We don't know. We don't care. We, it's probably gone or in somebody's collection or whatever. We have it in our canon, what we want. Well, that's a really... And I remember talking to my professor about this. It's a really convenient story to create fiction. And it, sat, it seemed just a little too Christian uh, to be real. So everybody kind of ignores it, except for that one Eastern Orthodox Church. But then 1948 comes along. The Dead Sea Scrolls are found. And there are a few fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are actually these books. So apparently... There really were and, and are currently Hebrew copies of some of these books. Again, no way to tell if the whole thing or not because it's fragmented, but they did exist. So it's probably not a lie. But in going on with this, they talk about the whole concept of the patriarchs. And the patriarchs are the prophets from Adam, starting with Adam and going to Aaron. So it's kind of a pre-Mosaic canon if you will, the writings of the fathers, very, very important. And so everybody agrees they existed, the church fathers, the Pharisees, Sadducees, everybody. But the, the Pharisees and Sadducees basically said, you know, what you have is fake. Those have been gone for a long time. Nobody has them anymore. And the Essenes said, no, we have the original ones. And that's why we know the oral Torah of the Pharisees is fake. And we have this big debate going on. Well, as, an, as a New Testament Christian, I can look at these texts and see that they agree with the New Testament. So that makes me think that the writings of the patriarchs are legit. So at that point, we put that together. And I can show you, let me just do this here real quick. 
go to our website and our bookstore. And we have this one here, The Testaments of the Patriarchs. This one right here. Uh, you can get it off Amazon, but let me just go here real quick to show you. There we go. Um, so what we did, we have the introduction and stuff in there, but fragments of it. We have a quote from Josephus, uh, one quote of, from the Testament of Adam. That's all we have. And of course, that's mentioned in the history. But we have fragments of nothing from Adam directly or from um, Seth. But we have a piece of Enos Testament. So we've got Enos, um, and then we know about the book of Enoch, but Lamech, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and then the 12 sons are the ones that the Ethiopia, or, um, I think it's the Syrian Orthodox Church had. So Reuben to Benjamin. Okay. Now Kohath, this one down here, Kohath is the son of Levi. So we're going down to Levi, Levi passing the books from him to his son Kohath, who passes it down to Amram, who passes it down to Aaron, that's Moses' brother. So all the books, all the patriarchal writings are passed down through Shem's yeshiva and all the way down to here. And then Moses begins to write what we call the Old Testament based on everything. So the morality is amazing. The prophecy on these things is amazing. And so that's why we, when we realized that's what the story is, we stopped at this point and created all of the testaments that exist at the moment. And these are heavily fragmented, but you can pull interesting stories back together. So that's what we have, as far as I know, all of the current um, testaments, which is not much. Because if if that's true, if Adam, Seth, Enos, if they all had a last will and testament, we should have uh, some 40 testaments at least. And we've got pieces of about 20. So anyway, so that's that's where you can get this and read it. And we will do studies on it later. But that's basically it. So it's interesting how the legends, uh, sometimes you can't prove them or disprove them, but then something happens through archaeology and everything changes. So good question. Thank you. Next question is, what is the earliest book of Revelation? Um, the earliest commentary that I'm aware of is about 240, and it's in the early, in the Antinocene Fathers also. It's called, um, let's see, who wrote that? My mind is slipping. Let me pull that up real quick. And so here is our, um, let me just try to do this real quick. Okay. So here's our, there, now we can see it. This is our e-sword. And when you go to, let me do this here too. Okay, you go to the early church fathers. And I think it is, let me think, four or five, Tertullian origin, I think it's probably five. Don't think it was Hippolytus, let me see. Um, let's see. Well, here's book seven, Lactanus Victor. That's what it was, Victorus. 
Um, here's the one on the Apocalypse, Apocalypse of John. So this is his commentary, and he may not be 100% right. He's just writing what he was taught, what he thinks they mean, who's the writer on the white horse, etc. But this is the earliest that I know of commentary on the book of Revelation. And so who I see, who else were we talking about a minute ago? Anyway, and I was saying that one of them, one of them is in here. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here, but we can go through. So, okay. And let's see here. In my superficial re research, I found Enoch was supposedly part of the Old Testament until 98 AD when the Jews removed it from the canons. Found this on the internet. Must, you know, could it be true? Um, well, it says specifically that it's not supposed to be added to the canon. Um, if it was going to be added to one of them, it should be the Old Testament, not the New. So that kind of makes sense. And it is possible that someone added it. Because in other words, we're being told not to add books to the canon. The canons are the specific things. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to go ahead and add some, not even to be weird, like a fake book or anything, but like the history of the Assemblies of God in America or something. That would be like or the, the Baptist Church, Southern Baptist. That would be legitimate history, 100% accurate. And I might put it in my canon to preserve it. Uh, like the Waldensians might have done that, you know, or the um, some faction or something. Um, and so that's something we want to look at if, if such a thing exists. But um, I, you know, I've heard stuff like that, but I don't see that it's necessarily true. Uh, but it might be in somebody's canon. Most important thing for us to know, though, is that it's quoted in Jude. Uh, so it's, and it, there should be a testament of Enoch if that legend is true. So it should exist or should have existed somewhere along the line. So whether it should or should not be in there, we want to study it if we can find it. And we do have an Ethiopian copy of it and Dead Sea Scroll fragments. So it'll be interesting to study. But, um, so in other words, we, we don't want to add it to the canon whether it should or should not have been, which I don't think it should have been, uh, but it's still something we want to study. So I'm trying to get over, a lot of times we'll get bogged down on this, and this is what we're talking about tonight, but we'll get bogged down on this and different people will argue it should or shouldn't be there. Well, okay, let's not put it in there, but let's still read it. And then like we we're saying, it even though that's the case, we don't know for sure that what we have is the real one, if it's 100% accurate, been tampered with. So everything has to be compared or judged by the Old and the New Testament. And that's why we first have to make sure we know what is the Old and the New Testament. Uh, the church is the bride of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians. And the Jews are the bride of God, the Father, according to Hosea. Would the tribulation saints be the bride of the Holy Spirit? That's interesting. I don't know, but that's kind of a cool, cool thought. And that might, um, if that's true, that might have a bearing on some scriptures. That's pretty neat. I'll have to have to think about that, see if that fits in with anything. Thank you for sharing that. And then, okay, as a secondary part of this, and possibly, possibly would things ignite with many signs and wonders 
like it did at Pentecost with the disciples. I don't know if there's any scripture backing this idea up, but reading Hosea this week. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I believe so. We have the scrolls talk about there's not many miracles or healings or things in the middle of ages. But when there's transition times, like the end of an age, beginning of an age, there's lots of miracles and things that happen. Prophecies are fulfilled. So there's been prophecies all the way through the church age, but they're really rare, like one every couple of hundred years or something. Whereas in the first century AD, what did Jesus fulfilled like several hundred, you know, in his lifetime. So, but they talk about that kind of stuff. And they talk about how the last generation, which a lot of times, it can mean generation in general, like just a lifespan of the last group. But a lot of times it means the Jubilee, that last 50 year period. So our 50-year period, the very last one of our age, begins the last 50 years in 2025. So we, we have two years left uh, in this Jubilee, according to the Dead Sea Scroll calendar. So then we're in that last one. And I really begin to think, that's why I think the rapture could be at any time. And the Gog, Magog war, you know. I could be wrong on those. So anything could happen. We know it's going to, but we don't know the timing. But I'm really thinking not much is going to happen in this next couple of years till we get into the, the very last Jubilee. And then there's going to be lots of stuff happen. Um, hopefully I'm wrong and the rapture happens tonight. That'd be great. But we'll see what happens. Even if the rapture did happen tonight, I'm still thinking the bulk of those prophecies like the Gog Magog invasion. Well, obviously the book of... Or, um, Battle of Armageddon is at the end of the tribulation period, but you've got all the tribulation stuff and a lot of things that could be before or during the tribulation, but lots of interesting things going on. So yeah, that's the, the scrolls talk about that. Like you're saying, I don't think there's a specific scripture in, in the Old and New Testament canons that say anything like that, but you kind of get that idea. The whole concept of the Miracles started when the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. And they talk a lot about that too. The Pentecost is when, uh, once you enter a new age, uh, the, the very first Pentecost is when God does something new. So when we enter the age of grace, the very next, very first Pentecost is when something happens. You'll be able to enter the covenant of the age of grace. And they were looking forward to that, not knowing what it would be, but and they talked about as soon as there's a second coming, whenever that is, the very next or the very first Pentecost after that will be able, anybody that survived, will be able to enter into the covenant of the kingdom, whatever that's like. And they talk about how, as an example, um, Passover, there was a Melchizedekian wine bread ceremony, which we know very little about during the age of of creation but during the age of torah it became what we know as the passover seder during the age of grace it was supposed to change into something and we we understand that now it's christian communion but they talked about when the kingdom age comes it's going to change yet again so it's slightly different for each age and they speculated on what it would be like and pretty interesting in that so, yeah, there's a lot of things that lead you to believe that, that not so much miracles and stuff now, but in the next few years, we're going to start seeing some stuff. And when it gets to the end, 
the non-Christians get vicious. But again, that's when you see miracles. So it's kind of spooky, but at the same time, it's like right now, nobody's really trying to destroy Christianity in that way. And there's not much miracles going on at that point when everyone's trying to really destroy everything. Weird things will happen and it won't work. Not that we can't be injured or killed or whatever, but it's just going to be interesting to see. Or if we are injured, more healings, more miracles. So we'll we'll see what happens. It's really interesting, though. An exciting time to be here. Um, Let's see if there's any other questions. I think that's it for tonight. So we are uh, putting together articles. We're trying to get our new network up and running. We're doing uh, lots of those things. We're going to continue doing this. So last week was the Old Testament, this week the New Testament. And then next week, we're probably going to pull those together, look a little bit at the Apocrypha, because we kind of covered that last week, little. And then mainly look at all the Orthodox canons, and we're going to put together a list that you guys can have on what's in there. So we have a list of the Old Testament. We have a list of the New Testament, the books that should be in there. We have a list of the Apocrypha. Uh, We will have a list of what the Old and New Testament in those books, what other books they mention. And then we want to put together a list of books that are recommended reading according to the Church Fathers and according to the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Not necessarily studying them yet, but just trying to pull together. We want the canon, Old and New Testament canon. And then we want at least a list of what's in the temple library or what was in the temple library and then go forward from there. So in the near future, I want to also get back to studying Hagi, which is the Dead Sea Scroll herbal medicine. We've already done some experimentation and stuff with that, and I've had great success um, in those kind of things. And several other people I've, I've noticed, some people, not so much, but everybody's got a different problem with different chemistry and So it'll be interesting to do that. So we'll come back next week and continue the study. Uh, God bless you guys, and we will see you uh, next week.